Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. Quick warning about this upcoming interview. There are some references to sexual assault in this conversation. No graphic descriptions, just a few mentions. Also, there is some talk about sex in it, so if you or someone you're with is sensitive to that, we figured we'd let you know. The great Sam Jay. She's a stand-up comic. She was a writer for Saturday Night Live. She co-created the sitcom The Bus Down, and she's also the host of the HBO talk show Pause. Pause is a really special series. Each episode usually starts at Sam's apartment, or at least a a set that looks like Sam's apartment. She's hosting a party, hanging out with her pals. And on every episode, they talk something through, usually a tough topic, often something that's close to home for Sam. Queerness or intersectionality, prison, fidelity. I don't think anyone enjoys being told what I think I think, weirdly, too, we live in a country where they promise you that. Yeah. We literally live in a country where they're like, you can do whatever you want to do. That is the promise. And that is a lie. That is a promise until you do it. Exactly. It's a promise until you do it. And then you're you're chastised. And when, when, like, hate to make it this, but when you're black and poor, those bumpers come a lot earlier in life. Yes. And you're seeing other people do things they're telling you you can't. Those casual conversations are interspersed with an interview, usually something a bit more serious. And there's often a sketch or two thrown in. In this one, Sam is Paul revering her way through the streets of modern Boston. Did you know you can make your own menthol? All you have to do is melt down some candy canes and pour gasoline on it. The crackers are coming. The crackers are coming. Are y'all ready for Jumanji? Because the crackers are! They're coming! The crackers are coming! Stop worrying about Jada and Will and start worrying about jams! We're jamless, y'all! Preserves, people! Preserves! Insecure is over! Learn a skill, The crackers are coming! The crackers are coming! You need to stop quoting Nelson Mandela on TikTok and start learning how to purify your own pee! The crackers are coming! The crackers are coming! Sam J, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Uh, hey. Did you say, are you ready for Jumanji? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no excuse for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's like something that you start yelling into the megaphone on like hour four of shooting, riding around on a horse and yelling things into Yeah. <laughs> it gets more and more. It starts with, do you know how to make jams and jellies? And it ends up with, are you ready for Jumanji? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, do you feel like that is a matter that you have considered? Have you considered what would happen if animals appeared in your home? I mean, the the more and more we were saying things <laughs> in the room, the more just stupid it got. And then... uh I don't know how we got to Jumanji. I think I was talking about how white people know how to hunt. I think that's where it all started. Well, uh, whatever. <laughs> it's nice to have a bit like that that is, you know, that's a very that's a very pointed bit. And I like that it has room for that kind of silliness. Yeah, Just like yeah. true silliness. Yeah. Uh, we try to like remember whenever we're doing it because we are talking and tackling like such heavy things. But... You know, we're like, hey, guys, we're still a comedy show. You know, like, 
it's okay to just be goofy. We were talking before the show. I have a buddy who made a show or tried to make a show with a format similar to the show that you have now, which is to say that kind of like Playboy After Dark. It's a talk show, but we're actually having a party thing. Yeah. And I think what he found in making this show with a lot of amazing people involved and amazing talents as guests and stuff is that it is really hard to... As hard as it is to make a show feel like a party, it may be even harder to make a party feel like a show. So what preparation do you do to make a segment where four or five or six people are hanging out around a pool table and talking about something tight and impactful enough that it works as a television program? Really in building that construction, a lot of it was just initially thinking about like, one, how to get the most natural conversation out of people and like what would give you that vibe. So it's, it's a lot of like really particular things like uh, we do it in an actual apartment. It's not my apartment, but it is a real apartment. And um, I remember being like very adamant, like this can't happen in a studio because once we're in a studio, people are going to feel weird it's going to be unnatural and people aren't going to want to just like kick it and talk, you know? So it has to really feel like you're coming into my home and like the set designer Roxy truly was like, I took her on a tour of my apartment, you know, like a virtual tour of my actual apartment. And she did a really good job of incorporating things that are really in my house in there and just really making it feel like a home. And I think also we made a decision that I would host these parties with my girl, I think, and well now my fiance, I think that was uh, also super important. At first, you know, I was being kind of an egomaniac, like a little bit in my head. I was like, this is my show. Is this going to be weird now? Or, you know, just thinking stupid, but I think it really helps because I host parties with my girl in reality. And I think it just warms everybody when they come in. It's two of us and we're like kicking it. And then it's also just like less cameramen. Like I only wanted two cameras moving on a, on a roaming camera, no uh, boom mics at all. Everyone's like laughs. So just all those kind of little TV elements that I know kind of put me in my own head when I'm making something that I was trying to eliminate for people. And then it was also about just inviting regular people. Like we thought about it, like if we have a room full of stars, no one's going to talk for real. Everyone's going to be like putting on airs and but if we like just invite some cool comics and people I actually grew up with and know from my everyday life and family and actual friends, then we can maybe really get some good like conversation out of it. You know what I mean? And then knowing what the conversation is that we want to have, even though the guests come, they have no idea what we're going to talk about ever because I want them to be as honest and, and candid as possible. But I really have the direction down of like where these conversations need to go. And then I kind of just drop in and push the conversation in the direction I want it to go to. Okay. So I have to ask you, Sam, if that set designer comes to your apartment to get inspiration, your partner is a interior designer. So mm -hmm. how much stuff inside your apartment is yours? Oh, uh, like none. I live uh, <laughs> <laughs> I live with I live with a lady and she took over. Uh I probably have like a little corner. But I think that was what Roxy was really good at too, was like still that apartment that we see on TV is definitely more me than my my own home. <laughs> For sure. Like I'm the one that buys the furniture for my house, but I also know that there's like, and so most of the house is, is my 
choices. And my wife is fine with that. But, you know, there's some stuff like I have a Ricky Henderson autographed batting glove and that stays here in the office. That's yeah. not going pride a place on the mantelpiece. <laughs> right. Yeah. I have an office and that's where like all my stuff is, my Lego stuff, any any of my items. And also just anything she wants to dump and doesn't know where she wants it to go. It also ends up in my office as well. What are you making out of Legos? Uh, I'm not building anything right now, but I build mostly like Star Wars sets. I have like three sitting in, in the closet that I need to get to. People like always give me them as gifts and stuff because people know I like Legos. Are we talking about the kind that costs, you know, hundreds of dollars and have thousands of pieces? Yeah. Like the big giant yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah. Like 7,000 pieces more or more, yeah. Are you one of those people who finds building those giant sets like centering and, and calming? I feel like the whole time I was working on it, I might be able to do it, but the whole time I would be so bent out of shape about what if I lost a piece or whatever. Nah, it's just very chill. You know what I mean? Like, only thing I got to worry about is my cat. He tries to like get in on the action. But <laughs> other than that, like, it's just a way to chill out, you know? I'll like smoke a joint and just sit in my living room listening to some music and put it together. What does your partner think about that? Um, She thinks I'm a nerd, but she's been calling me a nerd since I met her. So uh, <laughs> it's like, whatever. She just thinks I'm a little dweeb. It's fine. Is she not a nerd? She thinks she's real cool, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I, I believe that she's cool. She's definitely cooler than I am. But I'm like slowly nerding her out. It's taken a long time. I've known her 13 years and I'm starting to get her to turn some corners. Like she's watched all the Lord of the Rings with me. So, you know, just working on her slowly but surely. So much more to get into with Sam J. Sam lived in Atlanta for a while, went to school there and found her voice as a comedian there. But did she go to Freaknik, the legendary spring break festival? The answer's after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Um, hi, I'm looking for a movie. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, there's that new foreign film with the time travel. There's an amazing documentary about queer history on streaming. Have I told you about this classic where giant robots fight? Or there's that one that most critics hated, but I thought was actually pretty good. Ooh, I know. The one with the huge car chase, and then there's that scene where... The, the car, car jumps, jumps over, over the submarine. submarine. Wow, who are you eclectic movie experts? Well, I'm Ify Wadiway. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And together, we host the movie podcast, Maximum film new episodes every week on maximumfun.org and you actually just walked into our recording booth oh weird sorry i thought this was a video store you seem like a lady with a lot of problems it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne if you're just joining us my guest is sam J. She's a stand-up comic who starred in two television specials she was a writer on saturday night live and she's the host and creator of the show Pause with Sam J. Pause is a genre-breaking talk show that combines interviews, sketch, and real life, and you can watch both seasons of it on HBO. Let's get back into our conversation. I have a friend who's a comic, and I always thought he was like the oldest getting into stand-up, successful stand-up that I knew. Uh, he was 27 when he first did stand-up. You had tried stand-up, but you didn't really start 
uh, doing stand-up until you were a little older than that. You were like 29, right? Yeah, I was 29. So what happened when you were 29 that made you think you could do that? I don't know that anything particularly happened. I wanted to do it, and I've been wanting to do it for a long time, kind of secretly. And I, I just felt like, I think it was just that fear, really, of like turning 30 and looking at my life and being like, is this going to be like the whole jam? And I was kind of like, ah, this can't be the whole jam. <laughs> you know, I got I to gotta do something. I got to figure something out to for lack of a better word, feel more connected to this experience. And um, I was just tired of like being fearful of it. And so I was like, let's just see what happens. What were you doing for work when you started stand-up? I was working in a mailroom at uh, the John Hancock in Boston. Was it in Boston that you first tried stand-up? Uh, yeah, both times of my life. Like, uh, that's where I started, and it is the first place that I tried to do it. Because yeah. you kind of have roots both in, in Boston and in Georgia and Atlanta, right? Kind of. Like, I grew up in Boston. I'm from Boston. Uh, lived there my whole life. I went to Atlanta. I was in my 20s to go to school, and I stayed there for like eight years and then moved back home. That is a very different lifestyle experience, I think, living in Boston and living in Atlanta. Yeah, for sure. But also I was a different age too. So it was a different experience for like a million reasons, not just culturally. Of course, there's more like black people and there's more uh, black culture, culturally things to do. But also, you know, Atlanta's a, I always feel like Boston is white Atlanta. You know, Atlanta is where black youth go to college and like, so there's a lot of college clubs and bars and you kind of pretty much have the run of the city. You know what I mean? In the same way, like a lot of white kids come to Boston for college and bars and all that kind of So I think mostly it was just like that coming into myself, like as my, as my sexual identity and all that stuff. And then being in a city that was kind of swirling with blackness and, and black queerness and all that good stuff uh, was definitely like a big culture shock. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, as an outsider, there's a lot of cities in the United States where there are a lot of black people. You know, I'm in Los Angeles. There's a lot of black folks in LA, right? But Atlanta culturally is like defined by its blackness. Yeah. Like it is the place that you go to do all kinds of different stuff if you're black, at least <laughs> that's how it's been described to me and how it yeah, felt I when I was there. It I is. was like, this is a place for black folks to do all kinds of stuff rather than just feel like their blackness has to be a single vector. Yes. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. That's exactly how it feels. I always say it was the place where I saw the, the, the most like different types of black people in my life. When I went to Atlanta, it was like every version of us, the Afro punk version, the nerdy buttoned up, like lawyer, doctor version, the, the hood version, the, you know, it's just like every style we got is, is down there. Did you choose that on purpose? So I was born in Atlanta. So I was born in Georgia when I was a kid, but I, I moved out of there when I was very little. Like I wasn't even one years old, so I don't remember it. But my family's kind of always had ties to it. You know, my grandmother's from Augusta. So my brother and my cousin moved down there together when I was like 11 or something like that. And I had another cousin who lived down there. So I would go sometimes in the summer, uh, you know, when I was 14 and, and stuff like that. So I kind of always like would 
go back and forth in that kind of a way. So I was familiar with the city. So when I, I always was kind of like, when I get old enough, I'm moving to Atlanta. You know, I was always kind of saying that to myself. Like when I, when I get old enough, I'm going to move to Atlanta. Cause I'd already kind of been going there seeing what it was. Did you ever get to go to Freaknik when you were? No, my little cousins went though. My aunt made them a fake ID. She made them a fake birth certificate so that they could get fake IDs so they could go to Freaknik. They were like 15 years old, so they probably shouldn't have been there, but they went. And then she wouldn't make me one because I was a girl. I wanted to go. It was me and my my boy cousins that I'm really close to, my cousin Gerald and my cousin JJ. We like did everything together. And she was like, no, you can't go because you're a girl. And I was like, that's bull****. When you moved to Atlanta in your 20s, did you already know that you were gay or think of yourself as gay? No, I was I was like dating dudes and stuff when I when I first got to Atlanta. Probably for the first like two years I was there, two or two or three years maybe. Do you mean that you, were you dating dudes because you felt obliged or because it seemed like it was working for you? You know what I mean. I thought it was working. It was just like what you did. I didn't feel like I had to. It wasn't begrudgingly and like. I wasn't like one of those people who was like in the closet pained and, and stuff like that. It's just like one day I was like, this uh this isn't working out for me anymore. You know, like it just was really like I don't know. I got so I'm not clicking any any anymore with this and I don't quite understand why. And then once I figured out what was going on with me, I then understood that it was never really working, but I didn't really have any perspective or anything to compare it to at the time prior to that, you know? Once I was, like, intimate with women and it felt different and the way that my homegirls would talk about being with dudes and I would always be like, I don't really get it. It's not that deep to me. Then I got it and I was like, oh, you were just, like, a gay b- the whole time. That's crazy. You have a bit in your act that is about um, seeing b- from a, from a upwards or from knees knees to hips direction <laughs> I forgot about for the that. first time. Wow, and I like, <laughs> that's crazy. I forgot about that. And I like the idea that you're like this, this incredible personal realization about, you know, the most intimate relationships in your life and like what romance and love were to you and so on and so forth is framed in like, a realization that is completely just about switching types of oral sex. Yeah. Like, you're done and you're into now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a lot to do. It was. I remember the first time I saw a vagina, I was like, whoa, you supposed to put your mouth on that? There's a lot going on. It's very straightforward. It presents itself and all that it is is like right there. But the JJ is like, you got to get in there and, move things around. Yeah, it's a whole operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real job. But, you know, at the end of the day, you put in the work, it's worth it, yeah. in my opinion. No, no, no. I think it's it's for sure worth it. But it is, like, I don't think women who don't go down on other women uh, realize what's happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think they're very much just like, what's the big deal? And it's like, baby girl, there's a lot of occupational hazards going on down there. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, the last lesbian bar in L.A. closed. One closed. There was one by where I grew up in San Francisco that closed a few years ago. And like, I just, I, I feel like 
it can be really tough to find spaces. And I imagine it's like double extra when you're black. Yeah, but that particular stuff like that, like the last lesbian bar closing, or like there's not, I blame that on like lesbians. We're, we're not, <laughs> we're not like good at it. Like, I wish I was a gay dude. Gay dudes have so much fun, bro. They go out all the time and like, they're just having a blast. Like they're really like out the gate having a good time. And lesbian, like, I don't know if I've ever been to a lesbian bar. It's boring, bro. First of all, <laughs> most women, like, cause we just, we couple up so fast. So if you go out to a bar, it's just a bunch of like, who are together, just like in corners making out. It's not like if you're single and a, and a little lesbian trying to go out and get some action, you're probably not going to find that lesbian bar because everybody in there is going to be with somebody. And you're just going to be standing there by yourself looking like a damn fool. So I blame the lack of lesbian nightlife on the fact that we're all cuddled up in a bed somewhere watching TV. But when you started dating women, where did you meet girls? I mean, at clubs and in Atlanta, you know, like... Gay nights, different gay clubs. Go have like a lesbian night here, there, whatever. You know which ones are which, like in the city. You know what I mean? Through friends, same way people, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it definitely was like one of those things where you uh you would go out sometimes on a on a dolo and be like, everybody in here's with somebody. You know what I mean? Like that happens quite often for sure. It's like a a known lesbian complaint. Like, <laughs> this is what it is. A KLC, a classic KLC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are your top five known lesbian complaints? Oh, probably that. The, the, the way they make they don't really make or actually, uh, I think it's a guy probably behind it. And, they, and I don't think they're made for like people who are actually trying to like, you know what I'm saying? They're like novelty that's how they're looked at but it's like i really need this to do a job and it would be nice if like one was made with that in mind <laughs> but, right. the, the proper bracing and so yeah, forth yeah 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 like all the kind of like what you need to do it right you know what i mean i've looked at them at the you know at the fancy sex store you know like at the the fancy sex <laughs> you know what i'm talking about I'm like a <laughs> Like a friendly, lesbian-owned, <laughs> lots of lights type of sex store. And even there, where, you know, the kind where there's a blog that reviews products and so forth, even at those, you're like, this This really looks like somebody bought it from a, you know, a novelty store that also sold French ticklers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's number two. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just listening on the radio, Sam said something that we can't play, <laughs> we're, but we're on to number three. Number three is uh, the mean stares you get from dudes at the barber shop because your hairline will never recede like theirs. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> LeBron James looking at you with his eyes squinting. And like how you have to be like, kind of like, is my barber purposely pushing me back? Like, is he hating on me? <laughs> 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 Sam, did you always get your hair cut at a barbershop? No, not till I cut it off. When did you cut it off? I was probably 25. Try 25. Was that ahead of or behind a realization behind, about behind, your identity? Behind, behind. 
when best did thing you decide? I ever did to cut it. Yeah. I don't know. I just woke up one day and was like, I'm going to go cut it. It was really what? like, nah, today's the day. I'm just going to go cut it off. What was it I like feel. before you before you cut it off? It was just long girl hair. It just came like down to here, just like to the shoulder, girl stuff. That's a lot of work. I mean, one thing that- ton of work. <laughs> like you got to go to the barbershop a lot when you have really short hair to keep it clean and straight, but- It's but like, easy. Girl, it's so much. It's so much when it like, like being a woman, I will never go back to that. Like that part, <laughs> I don't- I don't care what happens in my life. I could go back to, but you're just gonna have to like me like this. Like you're just gonna have to be okay with getting from a with a Caesar because I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. It's too much. Let's hear uh, another clip from my guest Sam J's show. Pause. Um, as we said, it it is sort of a talk show that is built mostly out of conversations in an apartment, but it also has some more closer to traditional talk show interview segments. Now, these are often, I mean, the one that we're about to hear is uh, is going on in some kind of grand ballroom while two, like, mostly but not completely dressed muscle dudes are standing behind Sam and um, everyone is enjoying high tea as uh, a real grand presentation overall. And Sam's guest in this conversation is a woman named Kathy Renna, who's communications director for the National LGBTQ Task Force. And Sam is kind of, uh, Sam's putting it a little bit to Kathy about her experiences trying to find black spaces within gay spaces. I want what I guess is considered the unfavorable side of it. You know what I mean? Right. I feel like that part of it is actually being isolated and out of it. And that contributes to, I think, black identity, not really finding an identity within gay identity, right? I think about myself coming out. Yeah. It took me a long time to really fully understand my queerness because okay. every representation of it was so white. Didn't look like you. I couldn't right. find myself right. in right. it. And it seemed right. like in order to be gay, I also had to somewhat abandon part of my black identity. And I think that even affects like black families and how we how they view it, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. oh, you're gay now. Now not it's only a white are you, thing. It's a white thing. You're doing yeah. a white thing. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. And I think it's true. I mean it's 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 something you can level at, you know, at a lot of folks is that they're just just trying to get the work done every day, you know, is hard enough. She hung in there in that conversation. Yeah, I really she appreciated did. that. She did. I appreciated her. She she like she took the blows and and she was she tried. She really did. <laughs> well, one of the things that I find really interesting about these segments of your show is that even when you're talking to somebody who is espousing a point of view that is not one that you share, you're pretty generous about your listening. Was that a choice that that you were going to have that kind of generosity, even when somebody is, I mean, even when somebody's being gross, you know, even when somebody's being a jerk? I mean, when we talked about what we wanted the show to be, we talked a lot about like, yo, we want this to be a dialogue and we want to invite people to the conversation that may not necessarily share our point of views and perspectives because 
we need to start having conversations with people who don't share our views and perspectives. And right now it feels like people are drawing really hard lines in the sand. And it's like, if you don't think like me, I'm not even going to talk to you. And I just don't know how you advance anything doing it that way. And so, and then another thing we decided is like, these are people that we're inviting to the show. Like uh, that was very big for me is like, I'm not going to be to people I invited. It just seems wrong. I reached out to you. I asked you to have this conversation knowing full well how you think. It's very wrong for me to then sit you down and try to get you into some gotcha moment or be like, it just doesn't feel right. There have been a lot of shows where comics give their opinions about stuff uh, in a funny way. And, you know, Politically Incorrect was 30 years ago now. And a lot of those shows are funny because comics are funny and they, you know, they think of ideas in funny ways and they know how to put on a show, right? I think a lot of those shows are about telling. Maybe because stand-up is a relatively unilateral form, right? It's like only one person has the mic. Yeah. I don't feel like your show is like that. Was that a choice that you made? Yeah, I mean, I think that we wanted it to be a dialogue. You know, when we talked about what we felt was missing in the late night space or, or what we weren't seeing that we would like to see, we just felt like there was nobody having conversations. It was a lot of just, you know, people touting out their opinions and saying, like, I'm correct or 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 being judgmental of the, the left or being judgmental of the right and just going, like, this is the way that that you should think and, like, if you don't, you're dumb as hell. And me and Prentice, when we would talk a lot, we would often quote this uh this one interview that Prentice saw that he had me watch where this guy was like a Fox News supporter. And the, the, the reporter's like, why do you watch Fox News? Like, don't you know it's this and don't you know it's that? And the dude was like, I don't know. It just, every other thing just talks down to me and makes me feel dumb and wrong. And Fox News doesn't make me feel dumb and wrong. And it was just really that simple for him. You know what I mean? It was just like, these things make me feel bad about myself. And these things do not make me feel bad about myself. And so we thought a lot about that with the show of like, where's a space where no one has to necessarily feel bad, but we can have a conversation and hear different perspective. And then maybe that can like move a conversation or an issue or topic forward rather than this kind of heels in the sand thing that seems to be happening. I think for a lot of white people in America, the prospect of feeling bad at yourself is about yourself is truly terrifying because we haven't been asked to be in a lot of spaces where we consider others. Right. Basically. Right. And and it's like, how do you get to a space where you can show someone that but, you know, in order to do that, you got to hear them too. You know, you got to hear what's going on with them and, and why they are where they are. And then you can say, and then you can reveal something to them on the other side of it. Stick around. More Bullseye Around the Corner from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Carrie, is it? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am Psychic Ross, and I will be reading you this evening. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. I co-host a podcast. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Yes, I'm sensing that. The spirits are telling me. It is a show about Well, it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal. Oh, you knew that. You do research online. But more importantly, like we do in-person investigations. In-person investigate as well. Oh, my God. That's amazing. See? Me and my friend. This is so weird. My friend Ross, same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sam Jay, comedian and host of the HBO show Pause with Sam Jay. Let's get back into our interview. I was really touched. I I read an interview that you did a a year or two ago, and you had a special that you shot in 2020. And there there were some people who I think reasonably said that some of your jokes in that special were transphobic. And, you know, I've seen the jokes and I'm pretty sensitive to that kind of stuff. And they're not hateful or anything. I don't want anybody in the audience to think that, but I, I don't think it was an unreasonable criticism. And and the, in this interview, somebody asked you about it and you said, yeah, well, I felt bad about it. And I was like, I know that I have made, I mean, specifically transphobic jokes in my past and homophobic jokes, and I feel bad about it. And it was hard to hear people say that to me. It was hard to get that feedback. And I felt bad about it. And I have to say that just like hearing somebody respond to that criticism, not by saying what you could have said, which is like, it's not like it was hateful or something, by, by saying like, yeah, oof, sorry. I, yeah, I, I didn't want to, I, like, I, it makes me feel bad to make people feel bad. <laughs> like, I, I was very touched by that. But it can be that can be a hard place to be and a hard thing to kind of engage with in yourself. It's a lot easier to be defensive about it, I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I I genuinely felt bad that people felt bad. So it wasn't really that hard to like be like, that, that was not what I thought was going to happen. Like I went in with an intention to move a conversation forward that I hadn't been seen being pushed forward in any way. And I thought what I was doing was supportive. It was jerky at times because I'm a bit of a jerk and a comic and you know what I mean? But I didn't think it was undercutting the support of what I was saying, which was like, make space for these people and stop being And to have that kind of get lost in the fact that people's feelings were made me feel bad because that's not what I was trying to, to do. You know what I mean? And I can't deny that that happened if that if someone said they they were hurt by it or offended by it then they were and on a on a base level you have to say hey that isn't the goal though when i fight back on it is when people are kind of just like are you aware what you're doing is causing damage then it's like come on now chill i wasn't (laughs) that's not what i was doing but i can totally hold responsibility for saying something that hurt people's feelings or made them feel bad because that wasn't the goal of what i was doing or saying one of the lessons that i have had to learn and still like struggle with myself is that there are a lot of things that i could make a joke about where i could defend 
the perspective of my joke. I can defend the structure of my joke. I can say like, oh, this person was the victim of the joke, not this person. Like, oh, it was targeted at this because of this. I could diagram the sentence. You know what I mean? But ultimately, there are things in people's lives that they're not going to respond to a diagrammed sentence, you know? Like, there was a time in the in the early 21st century where I was on board the edgy white comedian, look, if the joke is anti-rapist, train. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, you know what? If you're in a room full of people and a sixth of them have been sexually assaulted, maybe don't mess with that trauma. <laughs> you right. know, n- regardless of how how you can like explain the logic of your joke it's sort of irrelevant to their trauma but it's a hard it's a hard world to tell because it's also our responsibility i think as comics to talk about the things that are uncomfortable to talk about and to breach these topics and try to get some level of understanding out of them and in that you may misstep you know what i mean and in that you may like go a direction and it doesn't quite work out or it doesn't land the way you wanted it to or you know the way you expected it to and like that's a part of the risk of like what we're doing you know what I mean and it's just it's just tough it's just tough you know because like I have a different things that have happened to me in my life and like I've sat in audiences where a joke for me was like damn I personally have an experience where that doesn't feel good but I'm I am a big person on intent and I listen well, and I'm like, well, that he he doesn't know me, Sam, personally, and the thing that happened to Sam personally, and I cannot expect this person to write from my personal experience, and I do think that needs to be stated because it's becoming dangerous for comedy. It's like everyone's walking in with their personal bag and going like, you said this thing that tapped right here, and it's like, dude, I don't even know that. I don't, I, I there's no way for me to create for each individual's like personal thing you got going on but if it's like some blanketly like yo that's wild to say about a community and a community is like that's wild to say about us then you gotta step back and assess it a little bit and you may not you may decide it isn't for you that's fine too but I do think you gotta take a a minute and, and look over it at that point I know a lot of comics who started comedy when they were foolish teens or at least when they were like 20 you know and they still had that like rocket ship behind them of <laughs> feeling like they were the most important person in the world <laughs> but maybe they didn't have a good sense of who they were have you ever thought about what the trajectory of your career as a comic would be if you had started before you knew who you were yeah i mean i don't know i i do think about it and i really think everything happens for a reason and it was the right time for me. I think a part of why uh, I needed to find myself before I could even be up there and, and talk with any sense or authority <laughs> about anything. And I think that's why that first time I tried it in Boston, it, it didn't really work out. You know, like I was talking to uh, Wanda Sykes about this one day and I was like, you know, I just did it and it didn't feel like it was supposed to feel like I couldn't connect with it and I just felt like I was up there saying nothing I was just like what why why do I deserve for these people to listen (laughs) I'm not talking about you know like I just didn't feel like I had anything 
substantial. And I had all these substantial feelings, but I just didn't feel like I had anything to to give. And when I was like 29 and I had really been through some life and 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 really had some ideas about the type of world I guess I wanted to see. Weirdly, I've never thought about it like this, but the type of world I wanted to see and how I wanted to impact the type of world I wanted to see, I felt this was a tool to do that. And then that gave me so much more like focus and ability up there. Sam, your show is so great. And we look, we haven't even talked about Bust Down, the show that you co-created for Peacock, which is also really great. And And I sure appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me. It was really nice to get to know you. No problem. Thank you. Sam J. Her great show, Pause, is airing now on HBO. Give it a watch there. She also co-created and stars in the brand new sitcom, Bust Down, which premiered on Peacock earlier this year and is super funny. I really strongly recommend that. I wish we'd had time to talk about both shows. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although, as I record this, I am preparing to head to the Big Apple, New York City, to perform at Lincoln Center. Probably will already have done it by the time you hear this. Uh, I am very excited. Thanks to Lincoln Center for inviting Judge John Hodgman and me. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye can also be found on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow us there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.